to give an example sort of pop cultural knowledge, I think if the police show up at your door and then they say they want to come in and search, many people have the idea, oh, where's the warrant? You can't come in without a warrant. But what we see is that when it comes to policing and traffic stops, that in general, I think, well, I myself, I'm not as familiar with the rights I might have. And, and we'll see that data also seems to indicate that people don't know they have some protections against search and seizure. In the criminal justice system, the people are represented by two separate yet equally important groups. <clears throat> oh, just a second. Just a second. Cut, cut. Sorry. Wrong show. Let's try this again. This is Relatively Prime. Searches in the mathematical domain. I am Samuel Hansen. And the voice that you heard opening the episode was Lily Kajavi. L-I-L-Y and Kajavi is K-H. A, D is in David, J, A, V, I. If you're feeling fancy, you, say, you could say Khajavi, but I grew up in Connecticut, so I say Khajavi. <laughs> yeah. An associate professor of mathematics at Loyola Marymount University. As you may have guessed, we're going to be talking about law enforcement on this episode. In particular, we're going to be focusing on work that Lily has done with regards to LAPD search data, primarily during traffic stops. You may be wondering why we're going to be focusing on traffic stops when we regularly hear about much more extreme examples of problems within the world of U.S. law enforcement. But Lily has a good reason for this focus. In the news, we may hear about the most extreme, the most tragic, um, terrible events. For example, an encounter between the police and a civilian that ends up in a death. Somebody's shot by the police, for example. And the Black Lives Movement has really drawn a lot, I think, to draw more attention to this nationally. But at the end of the day, the vast majority of encounters that people have with police are in traffic stops. So the Bureau of Justice Statistics conducts maybe every three years or so large-scale studies, surveys of police-civilian interactions, and traffic stops by far are the way most of us encounter police. And unlike the example of needing a warrant to search your house, traffic stop searches are usually based on a different set of legal standards. If the police want to search a car, they have to have a legal basis for that. They either need probable cause, say, visible contraband in sight, or maybe someone's, because of their parole or probation status, is subject to a search. Or if there's an arrest, someone can be searched pursuant to an arrest. Um, But finally, a driver or pedestrian could consent to a search. And so that provides legal, I don't want to say legal cover, it's a legal basis for, for a search for the police. So understanding when the police are using that as a policing tool helps us better understand what these interactions are like. So as good and diligent professors do, Lily was searching around for some real-world data for use in the classroom. During her searches, she came upon some aggregated data on the LAPD's public website. This was data related to a consent decree the LAPD had to sign with the Department of Justice due in large part to the Rampart scandal. Which... You don't know about the Rampart scandal? Go check it out. Like, like, go check it out right now. I'll just play some hold music while you're gone. Back? Good, good. Rampart was crazy, wasn't it? Like, absolutely nuts. So, 
In order to avoid a major civil rights lawsuit from the federal government, the LA City Council voted to accept the aforementioned consent decree, which gave the DOJ the right to oversee and monitor the LAPD. And one piece of that was data collected for every traffic and pedestrian stop. And so this is a large data set, over 800,000 stops a year, and that forms a basis for study. So what started out as a search for some practice data for students quickly grew into something much bigger. So at, at any rate, so so the point was that I wanted material to use in the classroom, but it became clear that there was a larger story here. And so it's become a big part of my research interest as well. One of the big things Lily has looked into during this research into traffic stops is how the search rates vary depending on the race of the driver. So unfortunately, perhaps unsurprisingly, if we, if we look at data from Los Angeles, we find that African-American and Latino drivers, especially male drivers, once stopped are much more likely to be searched, subject to a search than anyone else. This is true of pedestrians too. The search rates in general for pedestrians are very high, but especially for African-American and and African-Americans and Latinos, both drivers and pedestrians. Actually, that might be putting it a bit too mildly. When you hear the numbers, much more likely, sounds like it could be downplaying this problem? Well, first of all, I should say about 1 in 20, so less than 5%, about 1 in 20 uh, white drivers, let's focus just on drivers, not pedestrians, 1 in 20 white drivers is searched. That means either the car or driver is searched. But for African-Americans and Latinos, the rate is about 1 in 6. So it's it, that's that's a disparity that we don't, I'll just say we don't need to statistically test per se for significance. Um, we're talking about maybe about 600,000 drivers stopped over the course of a year. Many more white drivers, I should say, stopped initially than, than black, for example, because of the population of the city. But in the, in the end of the day, the search rates are so much higher for African-Americans that ultimately more African-Americans are searched than white drivers, even though almost 100,000 more white drivers are stopped to begin with. Let me repeat those numbers to help them sink in a bit. One in 20 white drivers who are stopped are searched. And one in six African-American and Latino drivers who are stopped are searched. One in 20 versus one in six. But you may ask, what if they do find a lot of contraband or weapons during those searches? Wouldn't that, at least in some small way, some tiny, minuscule, microscopic way, help make up for the disparity? At least that's the straw that I tried to grasp. I mean, it is something to ask. Someone will say, well, whatever the basis for a search was, come on, something must have been going on. Um, Is there some way to figure out if these searches were... Uh, productive or not. And actually, legal scholars have done this. They have the idea of a hit rate or a discovery rate. Finding something doesn't make a search somehow retroactively legally conducted, but but it's a reasonable way to gauge what are the police up to if you search someone because you reasonably suspected that there was, I don't know, there were drugs in the car and you and you find drugs in the car, then we could say, okay, the police were acting with reasonable suspicion. What we find in Los Angeles is that Most of the searches are not productive. There isn't a discovery made. And if you remember, there were a few different reasons police can use to search a car during a traffic stop, such as probable cause and parole status and driver consent. That is a driver, let's say, acquiesced to a search. And actually, most people do. If the police ask you if they can search, 
however casually or directly or explicitly they ask you, people say yes. But we can ask, well, what happens when there are searches where the only basis for the search was consent? So that, the, in other words, there wasn't probable cause. And what we find is on the order of 90% of those searches, in fact, don't turn anything up. And so if, looking at L.A. specifically, if African-Americans are being searched much more than any other group, for example, of drivers, much more than white drivers, but 90% of the time, or more actually over 90% of the time, nothing's being found, then you have a group of drivers who are being subject to a policing practice that we already know is more intrusive and time-consuming, doesn't build goodwill, and meanwhile isn't effective policing. And guess what? Race rears its head here, too. If we look in particular at consent, not just for drivers, but for pedestrians as well, we find that for African-Americans, actually almost 20%, so that's one in five people who are stopped are asked to consent to a search. But for stops of either white drivers or white pedestrians, it's actually just a little over 5%. So that's one in 20 again. I think when we compare their frequencies, they're easier to hear than percent. So one in five versus one in 20. So African-Americans are being much more heavily impacted by this idea of using consent as a policing tool. Again, let me repeat those numbers for emphasis. One in 20 white pedestrians and drivers who are stopped are asked to consent to a search. And one in five African-American pedestrians and drivers who are stopped are asked the same thing. One in 20 versus one in five. All of these searches do have a knock-on effect for the discovery rate as well. But it may not be what you expect. If you search one group of people much more than another, actually the discovery rates are, are lower. And in particular let's say drug discoveries, those are the most common common outcomes, if anything's discovered, they're actually highest for white drivers, for example, and, and lowest for African-Americans. And when my students look at this data, they start to ask, oh, does that mean one group of people is being searched disproportionately heavily? And that seems like a logical conclusion. So we have groups of people who are being searched at higher rates than others, even though the discovery rates are lower. This is really not looking good if you wanted to argue against the idea of there being bias in policing. One possible argument which crossed my mind that I thought could possibly explain this was related to geography and how different parts of the city have different levels of policing. Lily shot that down right away. It is true that policing is heavier in communities of color, but actually people of color are more subject to policing, that is to searches and so on, in in all parts of the city. So this isn't just a question of, I'll say, geography in policing in Los Angeles, the disparities, that is. There goes that argument. How about it being related to other parts of a person's identity? There's no doubt that there are other factors that affect affect, uh, likelihood of being searched, gender. Also, as people get older, they're less likely to have encounters with the police. They're less likely to be stopped to begin with and searched in particular. African-Americans, actually African-American men, though, are searched more heavily at later ages. Sort of if you, if you imagine that as you get older, you're less likely to be searched. That happens for all groups, but for African-American men, sort of more, more slowly, if you will. Um, so someone in their 30s who's African-American male is much more likely to be searched, let's say, or even in their 40s than other people in the same age groups. So the data shows race is even tied into searches when looking at other parts of identity. 
If anyone ever asks for a statistical rationale behind the importance of intersectionality, I think that's it. There is one important caveat to mention about this data. I should add that, by the way, that in terms of categories and uh, identity, we're using here uh, police impressions, so not how someone self-identifies. So for example, for gender, there are only two boxes, a binary male or female that the police will indicate. And when it comes to racial and ethnic identity, the police are choosing categories, and they may not be actually how a driver or pedestrian identifies, but actually in terms of the study, that's okay because we're interested in how the police perception may be affecting policing. With that caveat acknowledged, I think it's pretty clear there is no good reason why the search rates should be this different. And for me, it's the very definition of unjust. But beyond a completely unrealistic dream scenario of a bottom-up revamp of police training and practices, what can we, what should we do about it? We're talking about hundreds of thousands of stops. This isn't about, what do people say, oh, a few bad apples. These are about systemic practices. And probably behind the scenes, there's implicit bias. The training that police have, what they do during a stop, all of these things could change. Um, So in terms of policy, really, if we focus just on searches where consent the only basis. If these searches really aren't productive, they're not resulting in discoveries, it, it really naturally points to the idea of, well, how about not conducting searches when consent was the only basis? If there was probable cause and consent was obtained as well, maybe that's different. But if consent is the only basis, why don't we prohibit those searches? If I were an officer, I might not want to have any practice prohibited, but actually there's precedent for this. The California Highway Patrol, for some period of time, reacting to litigation from the ACLU, actually decided to prohibit searches based solely on consent. So this might be a reasonable reasonable approach that could be achieved through legislation or through police changing policy. While this does seem like a reasonable solution, it also seems very unlikely to me. I doubt that police, or legislators for that matter, would have any interest in giving up consent-only searches as a tool. That's why Lily's other solution is the one that really captured my imagination. What if we had the equivalent of a Miranda warning for policing? There seems to be no reason to not do that, inform people of their right to consent. Now, some legal scholars and psychologists have looked at this idea and it isn't clear that it'll be a panacea so, or an antidote. That is, they, you might inform someone of the right to decline, and they might not feel comfortable taking advantage of that right. But at a minimum, at least if we were more informed as a public, if we knew we had the right to decline, then we can start to see, well, what does policing look like? Do people feel comfortable declining? But at a minimum, people should know that they have these constitutional rights. Sure. It might not immediately fix the problem of biased consent-only searches, or remedy that so many people consent even when they don't have to. But it would definitely make me more comfortable exercising my constitutional rights and saying, no, officer, I do not consent to having my car searched. Then again, current policing practices make it rather unlikely that this is a scenario that I will have to deal with in my life. Hopefully something can change soon, so that's also true for people who didn't happen to be born looking like me. Whether or not this work, or any other work like it exposing the racial bias in policing has that effect, the work itself has been very important for Lily and her students. Trying to talk about the numbers here and have the numbers guide us and and 
point in some direction where we can create more trust with policing. But I, but I also want to say, and maybe on a more personal level, when I have my students look at this data and we talk about these issues, we're looking at the data a little more dryly in a statistics class. I want to see how the students can handle large data sets and analyze them, what, what questions they raise. But this is one subject where, you know, I'm a math professor. We're not talking about racial profiling every day. Students will come up to me later after class. I have a student, like a young black man, come up to me after class and say, I'm really glad we talked about this. This has happened to me. Or my friends and I get pulled over all the time. And um, I, I mean, I want that student to have a policing that, you know, police that he can trust. But also it, it means a lot to me for students to share their experiences. And so I that's one of the you know, more personal reasons that I, I think these are really important topics for us to, to work on. That is all the time that we have for this episode of Relatively Prime. I want to thank my guest Lily Kajabi for a wonderful conversation and the AMS and the MAA for the joint mathematics meetings where said conversation was recorded. Relatively Prime is brought to you by its wonderful patrons on Patreon. If you want to help support the show, like Edmund Harris, Laura and Sean Egan, and Charlie Wallace have, please head over to patreon.com slash relprime, or go to relprime.com and click support. If you do, you will get access to my whole conversation with Lily, where we talk about a lot more, such as that one time that I had my car searched as a teenager. This support is the only reason I can keep making this show. So all of your help is greatly appreciated. The music in this episode was from Supermilk and Steve Combs, whom y'all can find on SoundCloud or in the show notes for this episode on relprime.com. If you have any feedback for me or you just want to say hi, you can reach out by sending an email to samuel at acmescience.com. And while I was very glad that M-A-T-E left me a new review in Apple Podcasts, I'm still waiting for someone to post one with their favorite equation. If you do, it will not only be helping this show, but it's also going to earn you a shout out on the next episode. Finally, Relatively Prime is licensed with a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license. So please feel free to remix my voice to say whatever you would like, as long as you say that those words originally came from Relatively Prime. Thank you so much for listening. And until next time, have a math month, y'all.